All right, so we got up to the universal persecution after 250. Now, if you remember, we were talking about persecution from 100 up to 250 was kind of sporadic, mostly mob violence. And we saw things like, uh, you know, Peter and Paul did had some were, were killed during that time period, but uh, a lot of it was mob violence, and there was also some sporadic, you know, under Nero that was pretty serious, but it wasn't anywhere near universal. Um, and uh, persecution was something that happened, and we talked about, we started watching that video on Perpetua. Uh, you guys remember what happened in that video? At least where did we get to? Do we need to call and do watch it again? What's that? That's right. She's the first female martyr we have a uh, record of anyway. So that may not be the first female martyr, but the first one we really have record of. <coughs> a lot of it because she wrote things down. Um, after 250, however, there's an emperor that takes over control of the Roman Empire, um, Decius. And uh, he takes the throne in Roman history about the same time that Rome is starting to go through a lot of... Uh, um, they're reaching the end of the first millennium of their history, and uh, there's a lot of natural calamities that are starting to happen on at this time period. Uh, we're talking volcanoes, earthquakes, that kind of stuff. Uh, hurricanes, you know, storms. And then on top of that, external attacks will start coming in. And we'll talk about some of those as we go f further on. But, um, and so he decides that the classical culture needs to be saved. That classical Greco-Roman culture needs to be saved. Kind of like, uh, you know, we hear, here, you know, like our old way of life here, you know, our American way of life needs to be saved, you know. And if you can you think about it, if, there, if there's earthquakes starting to go on here in the United States and we have volcano eruption and we feel like, you know, people are starting to attack, if people were starting to attack us, we'd want to preserve our way of life. And that's the same kind of thought he has. He wants to preserve their way of life and their classical culture needs to be saved. And so, but he believes the only way to do this is with a strong arm. So he's going to do this with a great deal of military force. And he's going to do this with a great deal of Augusto. And he, during this time period of Decius, he decides that Christians are particularly a major threat to the classical Greco-Roman society. Well, remember we talked about last week, we talked about how they were already starting to see that this was a change in the way of thinking. You know, they were atheists. <laughs> Christians were the atheists. Uh, they, they refused to, to participate in things like emperor worship, and they question, called into question some of the great uh, uh, Greco-Roman thinkers and the moral way and their hierarchy structure of the way that they 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 base their lives and so he, he says these are people that really serve a threat to the state 
And so he, and then on top of that, there's a increasing number of Christians. Christianity at this time is really expanding. And as it expands, in numbers that we find it hard to believe here in the United States because we have not seen these kind of numbers, uh, except maybe like a Billy Graham revival, you know. <laughs> There's, they're really starting to see these numbers that are starting to spread. And so it's hurting the economic system. It's hurting the, theo- the, the theological system, the, econ- the political structure. Um, and he sees their religion as starting to set up a state within his state. So like a new state. And so Decius issues an edict in 250. <clears throat> and that's why we put this as universal persecution at 250 because he issues the, the edict in 250 that demands at least an annual offering of sacrifice at Roman altars to the gods of the, uh, uh, to the emperor, the gods of the, the emperor. Um, the emperor at this time, it's not uncommon for emperors to believe that they're the incarnation of a god or the gods. And he believes that the gods have put him there on there to rule and um, and so he he says you, at least once a year you have to offer a sacrifice to the uh, at the Roman altars, and those who offered such su- sacrifice were given a certificate uh, called a libellus libellus. I get that word right. My Latin's really bad. Uh, libellus. Uh, anyways, it was a certificate that you could present that I gave my sacrifice for the year. And if you didn't have your certificate, you could be killed or or punished or fined or, you know, depending on what they wanted at the time. And uh, the church will later have problems with how to deal with people those in the Christian faith that did go and get their certificates, either through sacrifice or through false modes. There was a black market in getting these certificates. Uh, black market certificates were not original to COVID. Uh, um and so you, you could get these certificates. And, and so they, how do you deal with people who just denied their Christian faith to get these certificates? Um, but he will persecute Christians on a large scale. Now, fortunately, I, I guess, fortunately for the church, uh, persecution of, under him only lasts until the death of Decius. He only lives rules for a year before he dies. Um, but uh, like Origen, Church Father Origen um, in Alexandria will die under his and be tortured under his his rule. So it will be something that fast. Now, um, excuse me. Now, and after him, um, 
it will be the um, Diocletian will become ruler after a time period. And um, he will, he, Diocletian is a strong military leader who came to the imperial throne um, that will be marked by political disorder. I'm skipping some, some Roman history here because um, we're at church history, not Roman history. Um, but um, he decides that only a strong monarchy can save the empire. Um, so in 285, so we've skipped a few years, um, he, beca- he decides that the, um, that the rule created, that the, the, the way Augustine had created to help rule the, the triad, to help rule the empire. Okay. Roman history. Caesar Augustus in the year 27 BC, it was 27 BC, set up a, um, a diarchy of, of the participant to rule over the empire. So that's in 27 BC. Now, in 285, Diocletian comes to the rule and decides that he doesn't want any help ruling. So this way of ruling has been around for a long time. One emperor couldn't get too powerful. Well, Diocletian decides he's had enough of that. And he, um, he decides that the Senate was no more. It would be like the president just saying, there's no more Congress. You're done. I'm the, I'm the ruler. And um, so the emperor takes control through military and sets up a monarchy, not under the Senate. Because um, the Roman, Repu- Roman and if you go back into Roman history, they are what we based ours off of in the United States, a republic. You say, we're a democracy. No, we're not. We're a republic. Even our pledge says so. Um, one nation under the republic. <laughs> it's it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a republic where, um, and so uh, we based ours off of the Roman Empire before Diocletian. Now um, he sets up his um, his military rule. Um, and he decides there's no place for democratic elements in the government, no faith outside of the state religion. So, like, they've been really peaceful up to this time with other religions. Christianity, maybe, maybe not, but other religions have been okay. You know, Judaism has been under their rule for a long time now. He decides that we're done. Only religion is the state religion. And so he's going to um, persecute not just Christians, but lots of different religions. And it becomes the, the uh, most severe persecution that Christianity ever endured up until that point. Uh, the first 
edict calling for the persecution of the Christians in particular comes in March of 303. In which he ordered the sensation of meetings of Christians and the destruction of churches and the disposition of the officers of the church, the imprisonment of those who, were, who persist in their testimony to Christ and the destruction of scriptures by fire. And that's in the edict. That's what he says. We're going to destroy Christians. Destroy the churches. Officers of the church are to be arrested or killed. And uh, scriptures are all the scriptures he can find are going to be burnt. Um. A later edict is going to order Christians to sacrifice to the pagan gods on the pain of death if they refuse. Um, which is not actually unique to Diocletians. If you go back into Jewish history, uh, a Greek emperor had demanded the Jews do this as well, and that led to the Maccabean Revolt. Um, Eusebius, a church historian. If you like church history, Eusebius is one of those people you have to study. Uh, he points out that um, the prisons become so crowded with Christian leaders and their congregations that there was not enough room for criminals. Um Christians were punished by loss of property, exile, imprisonment, execution by the sword, or by wild beast. Um, you know, we don't know exactly when that came about. We do know that the cross came about sometime after the church went to Egypt, so probably before this. Um, it was originally the fish was the symbol of the Christian. And then when Christianity goes to the Alexandria region of Egypt, they combines with the Ankh, which is the, you might say it with the circle with the cross. That's an Egyptian symbol of life and death, of male and female, of, of the afterlife, um, and at some point, it joins together with the story. Of, they already have the cross in story. And it was not uncommon for Egyptians to wear onks as a amulet of protection. And at some point, they synchronize the, the ideas and say, well, we're going to wear the cross as a symbol of Jesus. Um, and so at some point, we don't know exactly when, it develops over time. There's no just like flip the switch for something like that. We can say edicts. We can say it came out in 250, but uh, something like that. It develops over time like a fashion trend, and then it just stuck. And the fish became less of a symbol of, of the Bible, especially after uh, it became popular and became even, we're going to talk in... Um, that uh, it becomes legal and, and by then they were readily using the cross as a sign of Jesus um, Constantine used the sign of the cross 
towards the end of his life. No. Constantine's the one who makes it legal. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, so, what were we talking about? We were talking about uh, sword, wild beasts. Um, the fortunate were sent to Rome uh, to be thrown into a labor camp where they would be worked to death in the mines. Um, the pace of the persecution will, la- will slacken but not end when uh, Diocletian abdicated and retired in 305. Uh, there are other persecutions, like uh, Galerius will issue a deathbed edict in 311 that gave, uh, um, gave a um, reprieve to the, the, the Christians as long as they didn't go up against the peace of the empire. But it's not until the Emperor Constantine... Um, now, Constantine is one of those characters that most people seem to know from church history. Constantine the Great, Emperor of Rome from 306 to, 330, to 337. It is said, according to the tradition and the stories, that he was saw a cross in the sky with the Latin words, In this sign, conquer before his battle at the Melvinian Bridge near Rome in 312. He will win this battle and, uh, and he will start wearing the cross as his symbol. The next year he will grant freedom to worship, ending the persecution of Christians. That would be in 313. Um, though persecution does not completely cease until um, the Edict of Milan, um, which is in the end of 313, and um, um, and um, all religions fell under the freedom to worship in 380. 81. 381. Um, it is said that because Constantine believed that the worship of God would be the first and chief care of the rulers, he thought that there would be no state religion as a policy of the empire. And... Uh, he will begin a tolerant policy though on his deathbed he I'm going to use this air quotes becomes a Christian um, becoming the first Christian emperor though it wasn't until his deathbed that he actually becomes a Christian I use that in air quotes because there's no evidence I mean because did he actually accept Christ or not you know obviously that's up for God to make up his mind, but it was a deathbed confession. Um, and he will make, eventually make Christianity on his deathbed the religion of the state. The question we must ask as we think about this is, 
was Constantine ending the persecution a good or a bad thing? Why would I say that? Okay, so a lot of false doctrine sprung up because it was the legal religion. Absolutely. What's the benefit of... I know death is a pretty bad side effect of, of, of persecution. None of them wants to do that. But what were some of the benefits that came out of persecution? Kept them humble? Absolutely. You were true to your faith if you were a Christian. You weren't going to be like a false Christian. Um, during the time of persecution... And, I mean, no one wants to see death. But during the time of uh, persecution, we saw a rapid spread of Christianity. Uh, and during the heaviest persecution, we saw the heaviest, the, the largest spread of Christianity. Um, so it does, I mean, yes, it's horrible. But God used the way of the wicked for his purpose and um, and we also saw very strong Christians come out of this the church fathers that started were come out of this time period um, we saw um, rapid Greek speaking Gentile population among the empire become uh part of the church at this time um, Alexandria during this time this is before the Roman Empire becomes the the church it's not the Roman church yet Alexandria at the, actually at this time Alexandria Egypt becomes the the place for the church that becomes the largest person church at this time um, um, gospel is spread into Latin during this time period In um, the Carthage Church in North Africa grows like crazy during this time period. Estimated size of the church by 300 um, estimates that anywhere from 5 to 15% of the population of Carthage was a, um, uh, a Christian. That would be somewhere between 50 and 75 million people. Um, during this persecution time. Um, it created, the persecution period also created issues to be solved within the church where we solved issues instead of just bickering amongst each other. Uh, we're going to see as we go further on, there will be, and actually in the next section we'll talk about is how we solve some of these issues. Um, up into 590 where we start really solving some of these issues but um, I think I mean no one wants persecution I think it's horrible uh, that people are dying but one thing I did see in Christian history as I see as I read because I know I've studied this so I know where we're going um, during the time of persecution 
has been the most, I want to say, pure period of church history. When it wasn't a sought-after power position, it wasn't, uh, um, you know, well, I'm a Christian because I can get more authority or more power or the best jobs, you know. Um, and that, that even proceeds today. I met a, a man a few years ago that he went to church because he, that's where all the best people for his business hung out. So he was, uh, he, he did uh, uh, yard work and, and, uh, and air conditioning and that kind of stuff. And so he went to church and, and, and he was a Christian and he was there just because that's what he was after further discussion. That's why he was there because people paid him better. People, church people paid better. Um, and um, but it did force us to also during this time period to solidify things like the canon of the Bible uh, by that I mean what we know as the New Testament and the Old Testament actually at this time period will be solidified during these persecutions because they're in danger of losing their faith so they have to well, which books are, you know, and this is not something like a group. One guy said this one's in, this one's out, this one's in, this one's out. No, it's like over the period of time, they, they, they say, okay, these ones match up. This one doesn't even, this one's not even close. No one uses this one except these people, and, you know. And so they, they start to develop these lists, and you can actually go back and read all the, there's several different lists we have of what they consider canon. It's really kind of an interesting study. And so they will uh, see at these time periods, and, and this, this period forces the canon of the New Testament to be solidified. So you can thank persecution for the fact, just like we had um, a lot of our written down of the Old Testament, and a lot of the writing down and the rewriting down, because we'd lost some of it, and starting to solidify what was the Old Testament to the... Um, the exilic period of the Persians, because they started writing, the Jews started writing it down, which, you know, like, it's horrible, right? Death's happening, people are up there, you know. But it was during that time period that the things were written down. It was during that time period that they started developing things like the synagogue, which will become our model for church eventually, um, for good or for bad. Um, that will be, you know, so this, these persecutions do force issues. Um, And so they're as horrible as they are, it does it's not there is a silver lining to this that God well God used it or or it just it was forced to develop what will become Christianity. Um all right. Uh any questions about that? Statements, comments? All right, next week we're going to talk about the quest for sound doctrine, which is like how do we develop what is healthy doctrine in the, with all the heresies that are going on. So, But we're going to go on to the video at this time. Like I said, if any time you want to just watch it at home, you feel free to leave. Uh, we're going to watch it to the end. Uh, feel free to get up, use the restroom. If you brought popcorn, go ahead. <laughs> uh, all right the online you're gonna have to go to the website so
All right, Anna, you're going to have to skip ahead to where we were. There were apprehended the young directly from God in revelation, by dream, vision, or inspiration. Yes, perpetual enter friends and satirists. And they would try to target specific groups, hoping that if you put just enough pressure on these, on a small pocket, say, of the Christians, then the rest would give up on, on what they're believing and rejoin society. The idea was not to, to put to death a, a ton of people. What, what good would that serve the greater good of the state or the greater good of, of the gods? Instead, if we can take just a few out and make examples of them, hopefully the rest of the people will convert. It is here where Perpetua's account begins. She and her fellow believers have been arrested for converting to Christianity, and she has been placed under house arrest. Although her account states that she was honorably wed, there is no mention of her husband once she is arrested. There are speculations that he was either away at the time, or more likely, that he was not a believer and abandoned Perpetua to her fate once she was determined not to renounce Christ. Somehow, she has been discovered as a new convert. And so she has been indicted for breaking the edict of Septimius Severus against conversion. And so she, the other servants, uh, the other catechumens were indicted. They were under legal surveillance, awaiting the time when they would be taken to the prison. Of course, this upset the, the noble family of uh, the Vibia household. Perpetua wrote, While we were still with the persecutors, my father, for the sake of his love for me, persisted in trying to turn me away from my faith and to cast it down. After she was indicted for converting to Christianity, she was placed under house arrest. It may be that because of her father's wealth and position, she was released to his custody. While she was here, her father came to her and attempted to persuade her to renounce her faith in Jesus Christ. But Perpetua pointed to a vase and said, Father, can this vase be called by any other name than what it is? And her father had to say, no. And she said, in the same way, I cannot be called by any other name than what I am. I am a Christian. She's very careful uh, in, in playing down her heritage, which she could have played up very easily. She, in, in some respects, plays this down uh, because she identifies herself specifically as a Christian. So her main identity is not in her family's name. It's not in money or in her wealthy position. It's in the fact that she is a Christian. Then my father, angry with this word, came upon me to tear out my eyes. But he only vexed me, and he departed vanquished, he and the arguments of the devil. Then because I was without my father for a few days, I gave thanks unto the Lord, and I was comforted because of his absence. In the same space of a few days, we were baptized, and the Spirit declared to me, I must pray for nothing else after that water, save only endurance of the flesh. Perhaps realizing that these new converts might never return from prison, the local church authorities allowed them to be baptized ahead of their formal training. This is an ancient baptistry, similar to the one where Perpetua would have been baptized. At the time of her baptism, 
the administrator would place his hands on her head and breathe in her face for exorcism of evil spirits. Then he would put the sign of the cross on her forehead and she would strip off her clothes in order to symbolize her renunciation of her old life. Then she would be anointed with oil of purification from head to toe. Next, she would enter the baptismal waters and the administrator would immerse her three times as she affirmed her belief in God the Father, Jesus Christ, His only Son, and the Holy Spirit. After baptism, she would step out of the waters and be anointed again before she put on white linen robes that symbolized the purity of her new life. Next, she would partake in her first Eucharist with the bread and the wine, but then in Carthage there was a special ceremony in which the newly baptized were given a mixture of milk and honey, which symbolized their entrance into the promised land. At this point, Perpetua became a full member of the Christian community in Carthage. After a few days, we were taken into prison, and I was much afraid because I had never known such darkness. Oh, bitter day. There was a great heat because of the press. There was cruel handling of the soldiers. Lastly, I was tormented there by care for the child. Eventually, Perpetua and her companions were imprisoned. They were brought here to Bursa Hill and placed in a dungeon. Perpetua describes this place as a dark hole. She said that it stank, the heat was stifling, the prison guards were corrupt, and they were rude. Many times they were placed in chains here, and it was a terrible environment. And remember that Perpetua was the pampered daughter of a wealthy, doting father, and she had never experienced anything like she found in that prison cell. It was very heart-wrenching for Perpetua to be torn away from, from everything that she knew and everyone that she loved. Her whole family was, uh, was being left behind. The love of a mother for a child is intense, and the love that she would have for a nursing infant it was painful for her to be separated from her child. Adding to their anguish, Secondulus, their fellow catechumen and companion, died in prison. Life day to day was very difficult for them. Soon thereafter, they were visited by two of the local deacons who arranged for a better cell as well as for Perpetua's child to be brought to her. Finally, I got permission to keep my baby with me in prison. Once I had been relieved of the tortures and worries about my child, I immediately got better. The prison suddenly became a palace. I would have preferred to be there than anywhere else in the world. Now, in that time period, if you were in prison, uh, the prison didn't provide food for you. So we see a perpetual parade of individuals from the local church who are taking care of people in that prison who are Christians, and they're bringing them food, and they're bringing them care, and they're bringing them aid. Back in their cell, a brother approached her, and as Perpetua tells in her account, He said to me, Sister, you already have such an elevated standing that you can ask for a vision and it will be shown to you whether you are to suffer or to be set free. 
And since I knew that I was able to talk with the Lord, whose favors I had shared so much, I faithfully promised this to him, saying, Tomorrow I will report back to you. In the time of the early church, the use of the gift of prophecy or hearing directly from God in revelation, by dream, vision or inspiration was an accepted form of prayer, especially for one that was suffering persecution for the cause of Christ. They considered these confessors, those who were willing to give their lives to confess their faith in Christ in such an extreme way, they considered them to have privileges with God uh, above the privileges that were granted to other Christians. One of those privileges would be to ask uh, for a dream or a vision that would give them special revelation. In response to her prayer, Perpetua received a vision. I saw a bronze ladder of great size reaching up to the sky, but narrow, so that only one person at a time could climb it. And on the sides of the ladder hung every type of iron instrument. There were swords, spears, curved hooks, knives and sharp spits, so that if anyone tried to climb the ladder carelessly or did not pay attention while going up, they would be torn and their flesh would become hooked on the iron instruments. And at the foot of the ladder itself, there was coiled a snake of immense size, which would mount attacks on those who tried to climb the ladder and which would terrify them from making the attempt. Interestingly, the vision showed a man having climbed the ladder before her, Saturus, their local pastor, a man not arrested along with Perpetua. But Saturus climbed up first. When he got to the top of the ladder, he turned around and said to me, Perpetua, I am supporting the ladder for you, but watch that the snake doesn't bite you. And I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, it will not harm me. And as if it were afraid of me, it stuck its head out only warily from beneath the foot of the ladder. And as if I were stepping on the first rung of a ladder, I stepped on its head and began my climb. And I saw the immense expanse of a garden, and in the middle there sat a white-haired man in the clothing of a shepherd, milking his sheep, and standing about were many thousands clad wearing brilliant white robes. And the white-haired man raised his head, noticed me and said, It is good that you have come, my child. And he called me over, and from the cheese that he had milked, he gave me a little mouthful, and I took it in my cupped hands and ate it. And all those who were standing round about said, Amen. And at the sound of their voice, I woke up, still chewing something sweet. And I immediately reported all of this to my brother. And I understood that I was to suffer. And I began to have no more hope for this earthly life. Rather than frightening, the vision inspired and encouraged Perpetua and her companions. It became clear to them that they would be released, triumphing over the devil through martyrdom. The cheese or curdled milk symbolizing the land of milk and honey or the promise of better things to come. No doubt it was joy mixed with human sadness. Perpetua realized that she would soon go to the Lord she loved, but would leave her son behind. Felicity, eight months pregnant, began to think about leaving her child to be reared by a fellow believer. 
it's important to note that they still had the opportunity to recant and be released to the company of their loved ones. But their faith prevailed, and their decision to remain in prison showed great courage, dedication, and faith in eternal values. They received the news about their martyrdom with, with hope and actually with joy, because for these early Christians, martyrdom was an honor. They weren't necessarily seeking this out, but they rather gladly accepted it uh, once it did come to them. More than likely, they had already been warned, you become a Christian, this is going to be something that is a possible reality for your life. And so they wait, they continue in their faith, and if it does happen, like it did to them, they went ahead and accepted it. A few days later, it was reported to us that we were to be tried. Also, my father visited and looked spent with worry. And he came up to me to cast down my faith, saying, Have pity, daughter, on my grey hairs. Have pity on your father. If I am worthy to be called father by you, if with these hands I have brought you unto this flower of youth, and I have preferred you before all your brothers, do not bring me shame. Think about your brothers. Think about your mother and your son, who will not endure to live after you. Give up your resolution. Do not destroy us altogether. This he said in fatherly love, kissing my hands and groveling at my feet. And with tears he called me, not daughter, but lady. Her father even comes to her when he's pleading with her, gets on his knees, and, and he, he calls her lady, according to uh, uh, the narrator. So he's doing everything he can to try to appeal to her sense of status, her sense of wealth, her sense of uh, proper societal treatment, uh, any of these kinds of things so that she will hopefully recant her Christianity. And I was grieved for my father because he would not rather rejoice with me. So I tried to comfort him, saying, whatever happens at the tribunal, let it be God's will. And he went from me very sorrowful. Another day, as we were at meal, we were suddenly taken away to be tried and were brought to the forum where a very great multitude had gathered together. The prisoners were taken before Hilarianus, the proconsul, for their sentencing. The others went first, and each one confessed their faith in Jesus Christ. And my father came there also, with my son. And as I walked up the steps, he said to me, Perform the sacrifice. Have mercy on your child. But she refused. What her father was asking her to do was to burn a pinch of incense and swear to the genius of the emperor. But what was meant by the genius of the emperor was his daimon or his demon. And so for the Christians to swear by the genius of the emperor meant to worship a demon. Also, they were expected to give the confession Caesar as Curios, Caesar is Lord, and yet they knew from the scripture that Iesus as Curios, Jesus is Lord. And so Perpetua refused to worship the emperor. And Hilarion the procurator said, Spare your father in his old age, spare your son, make sacrifice for the emperor's prosperity. And I answered, I 
am a Christian. And when my father came by me yet to cast down my faith, Hilarion ordered that he be thrown down and struck with a rod. And I sorrowed for my father's harm, as though I had been smitten myself. So sorrowed I for him. In this account, when we talk about going before a tribunal, this was a very common practice. In Roman law, you would be given a, an opportunity to recant your faith, uh, to rejoin uh, with the, the culture at large. It was your chance to rehabilitate so that you could get back to being a normal part of, of civilization. And we have thousands of these accounts of Christians who went before these tribunals and the type of questions that are asked. The number one question that's consistent across all of them uh, and more than likely what Perpetua and her comrades would have heard was, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And do you be- are you a Christian? And almost always the response is, yes, we do. You understand that you're going to die for your faith or you're going to understand that this will cause you to die. Uh, we will have to put you to death. Yes, we are going to give you an opportunity, one last chance to say that you no longer believe in God. Just, just curse God. This one time, just curse God, and then you can go about your business. We'll let you go. In fact, in some of these accounts, I'll say, just curse God this one time, and then you can go back to believing God and Jesus. We don't care. Just curse God this one time. And the Christians over and over again would say, no, no, Jesus is my God. And so Perpetua refused to worship the emperor, And so Hilarionos, the proconsul, asked her, Are you a Christian? And she said, Yes, I am. So she was sentenced to die by the wild beasts, and her father left, taking her son with her, and that was the last time she ever saw her baby in this life. And cheerfully we went down to the dungeon. Then because my son had been used to being breastfed, and to staying with me in the prison. Right away, I sent Pomponius the deacon to my father, asking for the child. But my father would not give him. And as God willed, no longer did he need to be breastfed, nor did I take a fever. She knows that she is following Christ's command that, uh, you know, you must leave behind mother and father, brother and sister, and follow him above all else. She knows it's costing the relationships she has with her family, but yet it's something that she feels she must do if she's going to remain true to her faith. And so Perpetua is now fully separating herself from her family. And it is at this point that uh, she is uh, eating, and uh, all of a sudden she speaks the name... Dinocrates. Denocrates was her younger brother. He had died at age seven of a facial cancer, and she had not thought of him for some time. But all of a sudden, she was reminded of him by the speaking of his name, and it occurred to her at that moment that she had the privilege as a confessor to pray for her brother, and she began to do so. And I began to pray for him and to cry out to the Lord. Immediately, the same night, this was shown to me. I saw Dinocrates coming out from a dark place where there were many others also, 
being both hot and thirsty, his clothing filthy, his skin pale, and the wound on his face which he had when he died. And between him and me was a great gulf, so that either might not go to the other. Near Dinocrates, there was a font full of water, but Dinocrates could not reach high enough to drink. And I awoke, and I knew that my brother was suffering, yet I was confident I could help him, and so I prayed for him every day. Those who confess their faith in Christ to the extent that they were imprisoned and threatened with martyrdom, did feel that they had the power of the keys, the keys to bind, the keys to loose. These were theirs in a special way that did not belong to other Christians. And so we see this certainly being acted out in perpetuous dream and prayers on behalf of Donocrates. And so Perpetua prayed, and eventually... Then this was shown to me. I saw that the place which I had previously seen as dark was now bright, and Dinocrates, with a clean body and well-clothed, was finding refreshment. And where there had been a wound, I saw a scar, and now he was able to reach the water, and having drunk to his satisfaction, he went away to play joyously as children do. And I awoke. Then I understood that he was freed from the place of punishment. While we may not understand Perpetua's vision fully, we can appreciate that she could so confidently share with the Lord a concern for her deceased brother. And we can rejoice in that she was granted some consolation from God, which gave her needed peace in the midst of her brave suffering. This power of the keys, this power to forgive, was especially sought after by those who did not hold up under persecution, those who renounced their faith under pressure, and then later wanted to return to the church. These people would come to those confessors who had survived the persecution and ask for forgiveness. The idea was that those who had uh, undergone the persecution and maintained their faith had a special grace or merit given to them which they could offer to others in forgiveness. This is another example of the power of the keys, the power to bind or loose, to forgive or withhold forgiveness. Sometime during their imprisonment, Saturus, the man who Perpetua had seen as having ascended the bronze ladder ahead of her in the first vision, came to a decision. Perpetua refers to him as the one who builds us up. It is quite possible that he was their pastor and out of love for those he was taking care of, that he asked the Roman authorities permission to join the prisoners and accompany them in their fate. When you think about the relationship of a catechist with his catechumens, uh, it's very, very personal, very intimate. Uh, it was a time of, of teaching in small groups. And so, yes, not only would he be a teacher, but he would be a pastor. And there would be an element of pastoring and shepherding here, a tenderness uh, toward uh, these individuals that would uh, motivate him to surrender to the authorities and say, I also am a Christian. I need to be with my fellow Christians in prison. 
It's an amazing thing that persecution brings about on the, on the body of Christ. One that very quickly happens is unity. And even today, when we look at communities that are persecuted for their faith uh, in Jesus Christ, there is a unity that is brought about that is absolutely amazing. Suddenly, denominations no longer matter. Suddenly, uh, issues of, uh, of dogma and doctrine that may have divided us, they disappear very rapidly. Why? Because what's at stake? The real issue at stake is Jesus Christ. And so these individuals are, are over and over and over again repeating, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. And it's been demonstrated in their life. It's been demonstrated in their faith. It's been demonstrated over and over again to where that identity and their thinking of, who am I? It's not my job that defines me. It's not my role in society that defines me. It's the very fact that I believe in Jesus Christ that defines me. And that is the core thing that they begin to hold on to more than anything else. Just a few days before they're scheduled to be martyred, uh, they begin to pray for Felicitas. She is eight months pregnant, and Roman law uh, would prohibit a pregnant woman from dying in the arena in this way. It is not that her pregnancy would prevent her eventual martyrdom. Uh, it just means that if she delivers the baby later, she will be martyred by herself uh, among, among uh, crim common criminals. And her desire is to be martyred with her companions, and her companions desire that as well. And so again, because they believe that they have certain privileges, they begin to pray for Felicitas that she will deliver her baby right then in the prison. Immediately after prayer, labor pains came upon her. And when she experiences difficulty natural to an eight-month delivery, some of the soldiers mocked her, saying, You who are in such suffering now, what will you do when you are thrown to the beasts, which you despised when you refused to sacrifice? And Felicity replied, Now I suffer childbirth, but in the arena I will not be alone, for Christ will suffer for me, because I will be suffering for him. And she gave birth to a little girl. She's mocked primarily because why are you doing this? It's just this? It comes back to this question of why are you doing this? What, what kind of insane idea are you following that you're wanting to give birth to your child so that you go to death, your death even faster? What, what is this? And it's right after that in the text that we see that others the guards and those who are taking care of them actually come to faith in Christ after this event. So there's this testimony that Felicity and those around her are giving that is so powerful that even though there's a mocking guard, the others are going, man, there is something to this. There is something to this Christianity thing. One of those affected by the patient witness of the Christian prisoners was a man named Pudence, a caretaker of the prison. Pudens notices the, uh, the attitudes of the Christians. He sees the, uh, the love and care they get from others that come to, to see them and to minister to them. And he's attracted to their witness and to their lifestyle. 
After a few days, Pudens began to regard us in great esteem, having witnessed the great power of God that was in us. And so he allowed brethren to see us, so that we and they might be mutually refreshed. In celebration of the emperor's son's soon coming birthday, games had been organized. Part of the day's celebration was to be the public execution of Perpetua and her companions. Aware of this, they prayed for strength and received visions of consolation. In her vision, Perpetua is led by Pomponius, the deacon, to the middle of an arena and then says to her, Do not fear, I am here with you and am laboring with you. And he departed. And I gazed upon the immense crowd in astonishment. And because I knew that I was to be given to the wild beasts, I marveled that the wild beasts were not let loose upon me. Then there came against me a certain Egyptian, horrible in appearance, with his backers, to fight with me. And they came to me, as my helpers and encouragers, handsome youths. And I became a man. And a certain man came forth of amazing height, so that he even overtopped the top of the amphitheater. And he wore a loose tunic and a purple robe. And he called for silence and said, This Egyptian, if he should overcome this woman, shall kill her with the sword. And if she shall conquer him, she shall receive this branch. Then he departed, and we drew near to one another and began to deal out blows. My opponent sought to lay hold of my feet while I struck at his face with my heels, and I was lifted up in the air and began to kick him, and I stepped upon his head, and the people began to shout and my backers to exult. And as I drew near to the trainer and took the branch, and he kissed me, he said to me, Daughter, peace be with you. Then I awoke and perceived that I was not to fight with beasts, but against the devil. Still I knew that the victory was awaiting me. And as a result of that dream, she understands two things. One is she's not really fighting against wild beasts. She's fighting against Satan, who wants to take away from her her will to witness fully to her faith in Christ. But she overcomes Satan and wins the victory. But for her, victory is not living. For her, victory is dying for the sake and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. She's seeing herself as even conquering over prejudices uh, against female gender uh, in the dominant culture of the time. Because in the writings of Paul, we know that there's no longer Jew nor Greek or male or female. And so she's seeing herself as having a part in the, uh, in the almost apostolic line, uh, a direct line of, uh, of descent to those men who've gone before as, as great warriors for the cause of Christ almost. And she sees herself as preparing herself as a man to go into that arena. Saturus was also blessed with a vision. We had suffered, said he, and we were gone forth from the flesh, and we were beginning to be born by four angels. We at length saw the first boundless light, and I said, Perpetua, this is what the Lord promised to us. And there appeared to us a vast space, which was like a pleasure garden 
having rose trees and every kind of flower. And there in the pleasure garden, four other angels appeared, brighter than the previous ones, who, when they saw us, gave us honour and said to the rest of the angels, Here they are, here they are, with admiration. Come first, enter and greet your Lord. The night before their execution, they were granted one last meal, uh, which is common today, the, the prisoner's last meal. But in that case, the intention was to uh, give the prisoners a chance to sacrifice to the emperor, to eat a meal uh, in his honor. Uh, it was his, uh, his generosity that, that gave them this meal. But they cast that aspect of the meal aside, and they turned it instead into uh, an agape feast, a communion meal, a time for them to share together in their relationship with each other, and certainly as a time of worship uh, for the Lord. Finally, the day dawned on the 7th of March, 203. The martyrs considered it their day of victory, their day that they would face death but enter eternal life. On this day, they left Bursa Hill and marched about a kilometer, less than a mile, to this amphitheater. They marched joyfully and sang psalms as if they were going into heaven. What would happen is wealthy businessmen would sponsor the event of the century, and then they would bring out the best gladiators or the, the wildest animals you've ever seen, or sometimes they would stage huge water battles or whatever you could do, so it's always who could top whom. Uh, and so if you could get these crazy Christians and bring them out, this was, a, this was a big event, and people would come by the thousands to watch these things happen. As the Christians marched from Bursa Hill to the amphitheater, they were part of a pompa, a procession that included gladiators because there were going to be many festivities in the amphitheater that day in honor of the birthday of Gita, the emperor's son. And as they marched, the streets were lined with crowds and mobs. They were cheering the gladiators and they were jeering the Christians. But as the Christians marched, they gazed confidently back at the crowds because they knew that ultimately they would be victorious. And as they entered the arena, the martyrs left behind their old lives. Perpetua, no longer the beloved of her father, now is the beloved of God. She has left behind her role as mother of her child and now she is the wife of Christ. In the same way, Felicitas is leaving behind the bloodshed of childbirth for the bloodshed of the arena. She's going from the midwife to the gladiator. She's washing after childbirth in her own blood, as Tertullian called it, the second baptism, the baptism of blood, her martyrdom. After the prisoners had entered the arena, they were brought in here to the holding cell and chained against the wall. You can actually still see the places where the chains had been uh, uh, attached to the walls. And here they waited until the time to be brought out to meet the beasts. And they entered into the center of the arena. As Perpetua marched into the arena, she was confronted by thousands of angry people who were calling for her death. But instead of being afraid, Perpetua began to sing psalms of victory. 
The writer said that she stepped on the head of the Egyptian, by which he meant that she was already claiming her victory over Satan. In the same way, the men, as they marched in, they started preaching to the crowds. They were saying, flee from the wrath to come. But everybody was yelling and screaming so loud that by the time they got in front of Hilarionos, they had to speak by gestures. And they said, today you are condemning us, but one day God will condemn you. And then the people became so angry that they demanded that the prisoners be lined up and tied to posts and scourged by the soldiers. As they entered into that arena, uh, they were demonstrating, even in their actions, their, their connection to their faith, the, the truth of their faith. They were giving a testimony. And you see it before they go into the arena that they pray together, that, that they're encouraging one another to be faithful even to the end so that as they go, they go and do this very boldly that there's no uh, crying out uh, unnecessarily or, or uh, all of a sudden making a bad decision in the middle of the arena. No, they're going boldly out to testify that what they believe is true, no matter what anybody else in society says, this is truth. We believe it so much, we're going to stake our life on it. Imagine this arena, three stories high, the bleachers filled with thousands, no, tens of thousands of people, they're cheering, they're jeering. They've already seen the gladiators fight each other and cut each other down. Blood spatters the arena. People are seeing the Christians come in and they're jeering them and they're mocking them and they're laughing at them. They're waiting for the wild beast to come and eat them. And even despite the noise of the crowd, the Christians can still hear those beasts roaring, growling, and waiting for them. It's a frightful experience. It's a fearful experience, but the martyrs are not afraid. They know that they are going to win in the end. Frequently, what would happen with the animals is that they would place them underneath the floor. There's a whole structure underneath the floor of every coliseum, every arena, that uh, underneath they would keep animals, they would keep gladiators, they would do all these other kinds of things, but they would open up these, these trap doors in the floor and they would put the animals on this um, platform, they poke them and goad them uh, to make them really mad, and then they launch them out into the arena floor so that they are very, very angry, very, very upset, and then they just kind of look for who can they take this out on, and there are people sitting right there. Having brought the prisoners out before the public, the authorities required them to dress in the robes of priests and priestesses of the gods Saturn and Cyres in their honor but Perpetua would have none of it and protested. We do this of our own free will and come to die for Christ, not for your gods. And so they refused to don the pagan garments. The night before their martyrdom, the men got together and began to pray and to ask God for a revelation about what they would face the next day. Each man had a different uh, desire and hope for his martyrdom. Saturninus, being kind of a macho man, wanted to meet a variety of beasts so that the glory of his crown might be all the greater. So he wanted to be matched with a leopard and with a wild boar and with a bear. There was nothing that Saturus feared more than a bear. So he asked the Lord that he might be killed by one bite of a leopard. So the next day, when it came time to face the beasts, 
the men's prayers came true. First, Saturninus and Revocatus were brought out. They were matched with a leopard, and the leopard uh, attacked them but did not kill them. And so they were placed in the stocks, and a wild bear came out and batted them about and wounded them uh, severely, but again, did not kill them. Then they were taken down, and Satrus was brought out. He was tied to a wild boar so that the boar would attack him, but instead the wild boar attacked his handler and then only drug Satrus around the arena. So Satrus was undone and brought back to the stockade and tied up uh, to face a bear. But the bear wouldn't even come out of the cage, and so Satrus was spared from his greatest fear. At this time, the men were returned to their holding uh, cage and the women were brought out. When the women were brought out to face their wild beast, they were matched with a mad heifer. The writer says that Satan inspired the idea so that the gender of the women would be matched with the gender of the beast. In order to enable the beast to really attack and harm the women, they were placed in a net and tied to the mad heifer. And that way the heifer drugged them around, trampled them, tossed them about, and wounded them severely. It says that Felicitas fell unconscious, and Perpetua had to help her back up again. Perpetua's uh, tunic had been torn, and so she arranged it. The writer says she was more concerned with her modesty than with her suffering. And then she put her hair back up, because loose hair was a sign of mourning, and she wanted her hair up as a sign of victory. After their experience with the mad heifer, Perpetua and Felicitas were brought here to the gate of life, not because they had been reprieved, but instead as a place to hold them until the games were completed. While they were standing here, Perpetua asked Felicitas, when are we going to face that mad heifer or whatever it is they have in store for us? But then Perpetua realized as she looked at her torn clothes and her bruised body, as she could see Felicitas and her wounds, she realized that they had already faced the mad heifer, and yet God had supernaturally prevented her from feeling that pain. As she stood here, Perpetua took this opportunity to address fellow Christians that were in the arena. Surely they had come to support their brothers and sisters in Christ at this time of their martyrdom. Perpetua told them, stand fast in the faith, do not let what happened to us be a cause to weaken your faith, but instead let it encourage you. And this was very important to the martyrs. They wanted their deaths to be an encouragement to their fellow Christians, to encourage them to stand fast in their faith in Jesus. At this point, Saturus was called out into the arena. But before he went, he called Pudence to his side. Pudence was the prison warden who had given his life to Jesus after the witness of the Christians in prison. He said to Pudence, Watch, you'll see that it will happen just as I predicted. I will die by one bite of the leopard. Sure enough, as Satrus entered the arena, he was matched with the leopard. The leopard lunged at him, and with one bite, with his massive jaws and his pointed fangs, dug deep into the flesh of Satrus, and the blood poured out and drenched him with his blood. 
The crowds in mockery cried, well washed, well washed, which is a typical greeting of one person to another in the baths. In the archaeology of the region, there was a mosaic that was found uh, on the road that you would take, on the path that you would take to the main bathhouse in that area that had the phrase in Latin, well washed, well washed. So as these individuals, uh, as the narrator is telling the story, as these individuals are going into their, into their uh, second baptism, as it were, of blood, even as this blood is, is going out across the audience, the audience is cheering in some sort of perverse way, well washed, in the same way that they would have chanted when they're, or, or talked about in the way that they would have received a bath at the local bathhouse. So it's very interesting dynamic and, and a thing that's going on. It shows the perversity uh, of that society and, and that, uh, that group. But the author uses that to demonstrate, to say, yes, that is what's happened. This is their second baptism, but it's their baptism in blood. Again, Satris called Putins to his side and said, remember me and remember the faith. Be strong. And then he asked Putins to give him a ring from his finger. And he took the ring and he dipped it in his wound. He handed it back to Putins and said, keep this in memory of me and in memory of my bloodshed. And then Satris died in fulfillment of his prophecy that he would die by one bite of the leopard. After Satris died, his body was carried to the gate of death. There the other prisoners were waiting. It was normal practice for prisoners to be removed within the gate of death before they were beheaded. But this time the angry mob demanded that the prisoners be brought to the center of the arena where their guilty eyes could see their flesh take the sword. And so those uh, Christians who were able walked themselves to the center of the arena while the others' bodies were carried. There the Christians sealed their martyrdom with a kiss of peace and they kissed each other. And then one by one, they took the sword. Perpetua was last. The young gladiator that, that was assigned to her was inexperienced. And so it was said that Perpetua tasted pain once more as the gladiator stroke missed and cut her in the collarbone. She screamed in pain. And then she took the gladiator's hand and guided the sword to her own throat. The eyewitness said, it was as if so great a woman could not be dispatched unless she herself was willing to die. It is believed that after her death, Perpetua's remains were buried here in this crypt. The Romans believed that Perpetua's story would end with her death, but they were wrong. Her memory lives to this day her martyrdom inspired her brothers and sisters in Christ to greater zeal in their faith. And her martyrdom was a witness that led new believers to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Tertullian was a contemporary of Perpetua, and he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more we are mown down by you, the more we will spring up. And he was right. The blood of the martyrs was the seed that brought a rich harvest that became the North African church. And again, this is why 
we really see this as an opportunity that the Christians uh, are giving an amazing testimony. Why Tertullian would write, you know, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's what makes the church grow. Because as thousands of people watch these Christians die, they begin to question their own mortality, they begin to question their own understanding of life and wonder, do these guys have something that I don't? Do I need to go and find out what they're talking about? The story of Perpetua and Felicitas, I think, has so much to teach us about the way that, that life is supposed to be lived. That as Christians, we are supposed to live our life uh, fully committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it's not a, an opportunity for us to play uh, church on Sunday or to go to church events. That it's something that's got to be a part of our everyday life. When Perpetua says, above all else, I'm a Christian, and that's how she chooses to identify herself, it's a powerful statement. I wish that all Christians would say that with the power and conviction that Felicitas and Perpetua carried with them, and saying, I'm a Christian, is more than just a label, it was an identity. They were identified in Christ, who they were, and how they lived their life was exactly the way it was done because of Christ in their life. Not with Christ just added on as an extra. Their identity, their life was completely surrounded with the idea that Christ is Lord. story, isn't it? I kind of expected some of you guys to get up and leave. I told you guys could leave. <laughs> you were into that, weren't you? That is quite a story. Um, if you want to read, uh, read about her, you can read it in the works of Tertullian. Uh, he is an early church father, um, so it's free online if you want to go to, like, you guys, it's, it's past its uh, copyright date by, a, you know, a few thousand years uh, <laughs> uh so uh, you know so you guys can read it there um but we are about 20 minutes over so i want to just pray us out and uh, you guys can stretch your legs i see some of you guys getting tired you know <laughs> father god i praise you today lord i thank you for this wonderful uh witness of perpetua lord i pray that uh that uh, we may take heart in this story and live that we are a Christian. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.